The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, September 4th, 2022. That's not a conversation killer at all. I totally want to talk about the existential pain of living with the consciousness of death. Rios! Oh, thank God. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the ninth Digest of this second volume covering Monday, August 29th through Friday, September 2nd, 2022. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 5, taking a look at Issue 5 of the official history of the Marvel Universe, as it was in January of 1986, when this particular issue was released. This is my tour through the first 25 years of modern Marvel history at the time, as told by the saga and as told by writer and researcher Peter Sanderson. And along the way, I get to discover untold stories, make connections to later Marvel comics, and basically get a rough overview of the initial Marvel age. So this is Marvel Saga issue number five, And as it says on the Paul Ryan and Brett Breeding cover, more X-Men and X-Factor Origins, Angel, Iceman. You know, the saga was uh, big on promoting X-Factor at the time because that title had just launched around the same time. It was up to issue three by this point. So it's interesting to hear not only, uh, or or to read not only the X-Men title, but also how much they're pushing uh, X-Factor as well. Also on the cover, plus the origin of Loki and his earliest battles with Thor, plus Fantastic Four, Hulk, Submariner, Doctor Doom, Wizard, Ringmaster, and more. The stories and the panels and the art in this issue are pulled from... Fantastic Four, Issues 6 and 7, X-Men 44 and 54, Incredible Hulk number 3, Journey into Mystery 85, 101, 112, 113, and 115, Strange Tales 101 and 102, Tales to Astonish 36, Captain America 112, Marvel 2 and 176, and Marvel Premiere Issue number 30. This particular chapter is entitled Book 5, Terror in the Skies, and we start off from Fantastic Four Issue 6 with Doctor Doom and Submariner teaming up against the Fantastic Four. And Doctor Doom has lifted the Baxter Building from Manhattan into space towards the sun. And I love Doom's reasoning here. I've managed to snare the only beings capable of blocking my ambition to rule the entire world, Submariner included. So, Namor manages to save the day in outer space, which means we get an early exploration of all of his powers for the character. Not only does he jump from the Baxter building to Doctor Doom's ship while being exposed to space, except for a helmet that he's wearing... But you can see that he's able to to survive the conditions in space if you compare those conditions to basically underwater and, and under the depths of the oceans, you know. 
And a lot of this is using comic book physics, of course, but pressures, the temperatures of the deep oceans, it only makes sense that he's able to withstands, withstand the rigors of space. And then there's a scene where he is able to absorb electricity, which made me think, is that still a thing? Do they use this? So the description says, like a short duration electrical capacitor, Namor can absorb electricity for a brief time and then discharge it, which is what he does to uh, zap Dr. Doom. And I suppose the connection there is to eels and, you know, their ability to generate electricity. So I just wondered, does he still have that power? And then Dr. Doom escapes, escapes his ship by hitching a ride on a meteor. There's a whole bunch of meteors that were passing by at the time. And, you know, I'm not familiar with these stories, so I have no idea how he comes back from this. So the Baxter Building returns to Earth. I like the caption here where it reads, the stray individuals who later witnessed the return of the Baxter Building from the skies write it off as a bad dream, a hallucination resulting from the anxieties that plague our nuclear society. It was the early 60s and the atomic age after all, right? We then get the beginning of the origin of Angel, but then it's interrupted. We move to the Hulk, and a plan by Thunderbolt Ross to get rid of the Hulk by getting Rick Jones's help to send the creature on a mission in space. But really, Ross wants to put Hulk into a missile on a flight to infinity. I always love when Marvel characters use that word. I always try to track that word. This is all from Incredible Hulk number three with obvious shades to what they would do to the Hulk later during Civil War and the Illuminati story where they trick the Hulk into a space mission, space mission, and then that leads to Planet Hulk. In this story, on the way out into space, Banner passes through a radiation belt, and I just thought, more cosmic rays, more radiation that the Hulk has absorbed in just these three issues. And it leads to a connection on Earth to Rick Jones, where Rick is able to control the, control the Hulk, no matter if it's day or night. Because at this time, the Hulk was only the Hulk at night. And I thought, wow, this is a great way to connect how Rick Jones is able to um, integrate himself with other characters, such as Captain Marvell, And it could give reasonings as to why he has such a, a strong metahuman uh, connection beyond just all of that destiny force stuff a um, lot of changes that the hulk is going through in these first three issues not only the skin coloring but how he changes his power set suddenly he can leap great distances in a nod i thought to um superman because they mentioned tall buildings then we get a spotlight on the Ringmaster of Crime from the same Hulk issue. Apparently there was a Golden Age character named Ringmaster of Death that was his father. I didn't do the research. I didn't know if that's something that Marvel connected at the time or if that's something the saga is connecting now. On page 13, while you get the backstory to the Ringmaster and what he's up to at this point, that particular page 
drawn by Jack Kirby with Dick Ayers. As soon as I saw it, I thought, wow, this is very familiar to the 1989 Mr. Miracle special by Steve Rude. You can really see how Rude was in, um, influenced by Kirby. When you look at both of these like circus sequences, it's fairly amazing and pretty cool. Pages 15 through 19 is the origin of Loki. In this early stage, he is a child of the Storm Giants, and I know that would later be changed to Frost Giants. Um, Odin sure has a way of finding babies or making babies and pawning them off, as he, do, as he did with Thor and as he does with Loki. But at least he's acknowledging um, Loki's lineage as a prince, and that Loki is royalty, which I like. And it made me think, you know, as you watch all of these adventures between young Loki and young Thor, that Disney really should do a young Thor, young Loki cartoon, if anything. Once Loki meets Thor in the modern Marvel age, I again thought of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because we see Loki's fondness for wearing Earth clothing and that is something that Loki did, at least in the Avengers movie that I remember. We go back to the rest of Angel's origin. It involves a fire at his school and having to rescue his classmates. Obviously, he doesn't want to reveal himself. He doesn't want to reveal that he's a freak with wings. So he heads to the theater storeroom for some rope and costume pieces to make him look like an actual angel. So in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, who knew that Warren Worthington was a theater brat? Pages 24 through 27, we go back to the Fantastic Four traveling to a different planet, possibly for the first time, Planet X, where uh, an asteroid is racing to demolish the planet unless Reed can think of a way to transport 5 billion inhabitants. And his solution is to come up with a reducing gas. Now, here I believe the saga is making one of those new connections between various Marvel Age stories that were coming out at the time because the saga states Richards is the only other scientist whom the Ant-Man has entrusted with the secret of his reducing formula. That's the saga's narration. As far as my research goes, the Fantastic Four and Ant-Man haven't met yet. They, they are contemporaries, so it certainly makes sense to connect them and to have possible untold stories here and there. Uh, but I like that. If that is a conceit from the saga, that's what this comic is trying to do, make connections and to show that these um, Marvel characters exist within, within a universe. So I did like that. We then go to some solo adventures of the Human Torch, uh, during strange tales, maybe to capitalize on the Golden Age androids solo adventures, or maybe the Human Torch was just popular at the time, or maybe just throwing the character into a title like Strange Tales so that readers would then go back to Fantastic Four. And he goes up against the Wizard, which is the Wizard's first appearance in Strange Tales 102. I love the notion that the wizard was super popular before he decided to go up against the Human Torch out of, je out of jealousy, basically. He was an inventor, a magician, 
a chess champ. He has all these news articles written about him. And I thought, wow, you know, you could almost cut him from the same cloth like Elon Musk, right? Where they do these amazing things or they're at the head of scientific, you know, breakthroughs, but it's all for self-gain. It's all for notoriety. You know, the wizard is much different than a Lex Luthor type. He's more like a, a popular, you know, personality who thrives off of the attention and I thought this could be a, a great way to kind of like completely revamp the character the nature of this character if they haven't already in all the years of you know between 1986 and and current comics just to make him something different you know not just a, a grandiose villain but someone that is trying to recapture that that um infamy I guess you could say and then we wrap it all up with the first part of the origin of Iceman, where he is walking home on a date after having seen West Side Story, the movie West Side Story, which did come out in 1961. So, you know, perfect timing here, especially if you're dealing with the origin of Iceman before his appearance in X-Men number one. And there again, another connection maybe <laughs> with Warren as, as these two... Uh, theater kids, I guess you could say. So that's it. That's my wrap-up, and those are my thoughts for Ma Marvel Saga number five. We will continue in two more digests with Marvel Saga issue six. Top 5 Tuesday. Top 5 Acting Scenes. This is a continuation from the last Digest on the topic of comfort watching and YouTube rabbit holes. I present the top 5 acting scenes that I love to watch over and over and over again. And as was the case last time, uh, I say top 5, but really... It could be top 10, top 25, top 50. I'm going to start with some feedback from Chris Beckett that I got on Twitter when this subject first came up months ago. And Chris provided his own top five comfort YouTube vids, and he provided some links. Chris's top five includes Al Pacino's Any Given Sunday speech, Are You Not Entertained from Gladiator, the Last of the Mohicans ending, The Binary Sunset from Star Wars, and then he writes, My all-time favorite scene with my all-time favorite musical cue from my all-time favorite movie. It had to be on the list. Uh, yeah, that's actually one of my favorite Star Wars moments as well. And then, number one, Peter Capaldi from the Hour series. Not because it's the one I go to most, but because it's some of the best acting I have ever seen in anything. That was a great list, and those were great scenes to watch. It probably comes as no shock that of the five, I've only seen Star Wars. I've never seen Gladiator. Any Given Sunday was recommended to me because I did a segment on true sports movies way back uh, in November. Let's see, the Digest for November 21st, 2021. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've just, I've never seen all these movies, so... 
that's why I like getting feedback like this, because then I can go, oh, okay, well, let me check out the scene, and then let me go check out the movie. So here are my top five for this moment, subject to change, you know, these are the ones that came to mind kind of immediately. And just like the intro music suggested, I'm going to start out strong with Jaws, which is one of my top five favorite movies. And this scene is Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was... Shark comes the nearest man, that man, he starts pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then... Ah, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, and they rip you to pieces. This is the scene where they go from comparing injuries and scars eventually to the speech about the USS Indianapolis, and then eventually to an attack from the shark. And, you know, so much has been said about this movie, the the backstory and the behind-the-scenes of the movie, of this particular scene, and the way that Robert Shaw presented the monologue. All of it is amazing. It really is in the top five, uh, in my top five favorite movies, because it goes from, you know, horror to high adventure and back again. I mean, it's just such an amazing work. And this scene, the thing I love most about it is, you know, you got these three very individual characters and also these three very different individual actors. And they find a way to come together and then it suddenly gets ultra personal and this whole Indianapolis story is a is a way into the character of Quint and his mission and his zeal. And I love how the music slowly creeps in as as his story gets darker and darker. Um, and then he lands it at the end with that just very casual line, anyway, we delivered the bomb. And just the whole scene, like, that is just such an amazing scene. And what's so great about it is it does have an effect on the rest of the movie because suddenly they work a little bit more as a team from here on out. And so good. Just, I, I had to start off strong because I, I, I watched that scene quite a lot. Next up we have from American Hustle, a scene with Amy Adams. I'm going to do these four pasts, these four cons to get us out of this not just me but us and i'm gonna get really close with richie the cop in case we need to use him if we need another move we don't need another move we need four busts and we're done we are gonna need another move trust me and you're gonna be thanking me 
The key to people is what they believe or what they want to believe. So I want to believe that we were real. We are real. And I want to believe that a man could want me. And I'm going to take all of that heartbreak and all of that sorrow and I am going to use it. And I'm going to make Richie think that I want him and that I like him. And I want to be very, very convincing. And I'm pissed at you. Because I'm pissed at you. Maybe I do like him. Now, I was not sure how much of a, a good actress Amy Adams was prior to seeing this movie. Sometimes her face, her eyes, don't have enough, uh, don't have enough variation. But this scene, for some reason, she scared me. She knew what she wanted. She knows how she's going to get it. And she knows that the things that she's saying to Christian Bale's character in this scene... She knows that he's going to get hurt, and she doesn't care. And it, it just, I said to myself, damn, that one scene totally elevated her for me as an actress. Uh, the delivery of the lines, the way it was shot, so you just see her face, and something in her eyes goes from being very hurt and playing the role that she's playing in this part. Uh, not not only the character, but the character itself is also playing a role, if you know the movie. But there's something that happens in her eyes, and you see her change and get dark and get determined. And I, when I watched this movie, I just was like, oh boy. So one of those scenes um, I, I watch, and one of those scenes that really just kind of came to mind right away as I thought of this topic. Next up from Lean On Me, we have Morgan Freeman, Robert Guillaume. I will warn you, there is some language in this one. You disappoint me, brother. You disappoint me. The disappointment here is you! Me! Yes! Look, you know who I am. You know me 30 years. You know what I would do. You know Nigga, how I can operate. you keep quiet? The fact is, you're screwing up. You're alienating everybody. Look at you, you have no life. Your wife left you. I ought to walk out on you myself. Well, go ahead. Bail hell on out. But I said I would back you up. That's what you said, Frank. That's what you said. Brother, I will go through the fire with you. But you are not taking care of business. This shit you're pulling now, you're just going plain loco. Now, you suspend Darnell. What the hell was that? Darnell is symptomatic of the disciplinary problem. He is that a good, strong, young black teacher. So he dumped that desk right on top of your head. Well, right on. Good for him. You will reinstate that man, you hear? And then you fire Mrs. Elliot. Why? Because she didn't want to kiss your ass. Well, I wouldn't either. How about that? Mrs. Elliot has an ego. Yeah, well, you lost the best teacher we had. We couldn't get her back now if we wanted to. I don't have time for Mrs. Elliot's problem. Well, you better make time. We are being crucified by a process that is turning black into a permanent underclass here, Frank. A permanent underclass. No, no, see? Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody. Mrs. Elliot's missionary zeal about Mozart has nothing to do with our problem. Nothing! What good is Mozart going to do a bunch of children who can't go out and get a job? This was a hard scene to try to decide what clip I was going to play because the whole thing is fantastic. My friend and I, we can recite this scene and this movie word for word as we watch it because it's just one of those movies that 
is highly dramatic and yet the acting is very real and very raw and I can imagine what it was like to film these this scene with these two actors and just very little staging and once they get to the last part of it there's about a minute where there are no edits it's all just you know the 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 scene and it just plays out and it's just fantastic it's two friends arguing it's two colleagues arguing in many ways they almost seem like spouses arguing there's emotionality there's variation in not only the way they talk to each other but in their level of voice in the tactics in the tactics that they move uh, use to try to win their conversation and win their arguments these are not just actors reciting lines. They are listening to each other. They're reacting. They're fighting for position. They're fighting to be heard. It is just brilliant. It's honestly one of those scenes that could be used as kind of like a, a an educational acting scene. All right, next up from Philadelphia, we have Denzel Washington. Because this case is not just about AIDS, is it? So let's talk about what this case is really all about. The general public's hatred, our loathing, our fear of homosexuals. And how that climate of hatred and fear translated into the firing of this particular homosexual. My client, Andrew Beckett. Please have a seat, Mr. Miller. In this courtroom, Mr. Miller, justice is blind to matters of race, creed, color, religion, and sexual orientation. With all due respect, Your Honor, we don't live in this courtroom, though, do we? Not gonna lie, this is a little bit self-serving. This movie came out right as I was in college in Philadelphia. I was learning to love the city, I thoroughly enjoyed seeing the city represented on the big screen at the time. And the city became a backdrop to, you know, a very important movie and a very important situation that was getting talked about and was becoming more and more pushed into the forefront of people's minds. And this particular scene, just to hear it talked about so openly and so plainly, it's not even one of the best scenes in the movie. But it's a scene that I enjoy. In fact, all the courtroom stuff I, I really enjoy. I think there's something to be said about the very matter-of-factly way that Denzel Washington is, is delivering this particular scene and just putting it out there. There might even be something to be said about a black actor saying these lines and and being the one to hold up this position. Um, it just felt important. It felt important at the time. I don't know how history has treated this movie, um, but I know at the time it it was very powerful. And it's a, you know, there are a number of scenes that I come back to in this movie. Okay, so we wrap it up with a scene from Birdman, Ed Norton and Michael Keaton. So why don't you just give me that same thing again, uh -huh. but cut it down, try it. Okay. Just try it. Uh... Hey, I'm the wrong person to ask. I oh, no, but the that's guy. the thing. See, I'm the wrong person to ask. What is it? I think it's fuck you. Fuck you. Don't don't put me on the spot, man. I, don't 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 make me feel self-conscious about my marriage while my le my wife is sitting right there. Right there. Yeah. Can I sit down? Yeah, sit. Okay. Sit. Good idea. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so just, just give it to me as a fuck you. Right. Try it. Lay it on me. Yeah. Just do it. Come on, give it to well, me. I'm thinking, fuck me hard. Okay. Just, just yeah. Give it. Right. Come on, okay. don't talk about yeah. it. Just fucking. Hey, I'm the wrong person to ask, right? I don't even know the guy, okay? What's your point? What's my point? Yeah, what's your point? What are you saying? Spit it out. Oh. You're saying what? Oh. What are you saying? You're saying love is absolute. Yes! Yes! The kind of love that I'm talking about, it is absolute. The kind of love that I'm talking about, you don't. You don't try to kill people. Good. I don't know. Think, boss. Okay. You want to do this? Me? What do you think? This is another movie that I talked about uh, in some episode a couple years back when I saw this for the first time. I honestly think I like this movie or or this scene because it is it is a commentary on theater and acting and what it's like to work with a scene partner while they are filming a movie about acting and and while they are acting in a scene, right? It's very meta in that way. But there's something about Ed Norton's quest to get to the truth of a scene, to get to the truth of the dialogue. And his character is a total jerk through most of the movie. But I have to say, I can't ignore with what he's trying to get in the scene, what he's trying to pull out of Michael Keaton's character, just the essence of truth, the honest emotionality of it. And it it, it just kind of spoke to me as an actor. As I saw this scene, as I watched this movie, um, the whole film kind of hit me. You know, it's theater, it's acting, it's movies, it's Michael Keaton, it's Birdman, it's Batman. I mean, there was just so much that my brain couldn't process everything that I was watching. And I don't think I've actually seen it for a second time since that initial viewing, but I watch a lot of scenes from it. So its inclusion was a no, no-brainer, a no-bird-brainer. <laughs> so there you go, that's my top five list. As I mentioned, there were so many more that I could talk about, um, such as the fight scene in Crazy Stupid Love with Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell and Julianne Moore, Emma Stone, um... Uh, Kevin Bacon, uh, that whole last scene in the backyard is just so funny and so well-written and so phenomenal. There's the Mr. X scene in JFK with Kevin Costner and Donald Sutherland, just just a tour de force of a conspiracy-laden, you know, just, just, uh, just so good. I mean, that whole movie, again, so good. Jack Nicholson in Witches of Eastwick, where he's giving the monologue about what God was thinking when he created woman. Um, again, a monologue that it showcases uh, a particular character that is not a nice character, but the monologue itself is brilliant. Another movie that's totally a guilty pleasure, but less than zero, particularly the pool scene between uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Andrew McCarthy. Um where uh, Downey's character is asking for money. There's just something very touching about that scene. Um, Robert Downey's performance is, it's, you know, it's not a great movie, but it was a movie I was obsessed with. And um, the back and forth is, uh, you know, a friendship that you can just see is crumbling, and it's just very sad. And then... I tried to find a, um, a scene with Michelle Williams in Blue Valentine because that's another movie that just rips your heart out. 
And it's the movie that cemented Michelle Williams for me as uh, another just amazing actress, um, just because how vulnerable she is, but yet when she needed to be strong, that power comes through. And again, you're watching a couple just slowly deteriorating and declining and, you know, it's the kind of romance movies I like, you know, the the dark side of romance, the tragedy side of romance, and she was just brilliant in it. Okay, there you go. That wraps up this segment. Let me know what your top five acting scenes are. Uh, hey, I'm Zach Kaplan. I'm the writer of Vault Comics Mindset, Image, Top Cows, Metal Society, Dark Horses, Breakout, and my other comics, Port of Earth, Eclipse, Lost City Explorers, Join the Future. But I have a new sci-fi time travel adventure series coming your way from Scout Comics. It's called Forever Forward. The story follows a quantum physicist who accidentally launches himself, his three best friends, and his lifetime crush forward in time and to a future where they find a message from their future selves that says the only way to go back in time is to go forward and find that technology. So they have to go forward again and again through all sorts of crazy futures. There's a Russian invasion of California. There's fascist robots, all sorts of crazy futures that we dis- that we discover along the way as they're trying to make their way home. It's a gorgeous book drawn by Arjuna Susini, colored by Brad Simpson, lettered by Jim Campbell, designs are by Tim Daniels, Second Rocket, and the covers are amazing. Forever 4 number one comes out August 24th, and it will not disappoint. Thank you very much. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of August 31st. I'm not going to be doing any reviews this time around. I'm just going to drop some recommendations. Starting with from Scout Comics, Forever Forward, one of five for $4.99. As you heard in the uh, bumper clip there. It sounds great. It looks great. I'll just add here that they call it a sci-fi adventure that imagines time traveling through the future as an Odyssey-style mythic journey home. In the vein of something like Black Science or Paper Girls, and they're asking a lot of questions such as, where are we headed for our future and what we should do about it now? And it's just one of those stories that speaks to me, so I wanted to give it a recommendation. Next up from Abrams Comic Arts, under its Marvel Arts imprint, the book that everybody's talking about this month and this week, Fantastic Four Full Circle, the graphic novel by Alex Ross, colors by Ross with Josh Johnson, lettering by Ariana Mayer. And this is basically revisiting This Man, This Monster from Fantastic Four issue number 51, and ultimately creating a sequel of sorts. Um, That particular issue was the first appearance of The Negative Zone. This entire book, if you read a couple interviews from Alex Ross, is really a tribute to Jack Kirby and the notion that um, Kirby could have worked and and did work on his own in many of, of the books that he created. And apparently this is a new line of graphic original graphic novels based on Marvel's iconic characters, but I'm not sure if I've seen some kind of follow-up from somebody else. The other thing that this book has done is it has brought Alex Ross out to do uh, interviews, not just written interviews, but podcast interviews and video interviews. I mean, this was, you know, it's not like 
Alex Ross is a stranger to any of that, but he is really pushing this book. So he really wants people to, to read it. So there you go. From Magnetic Press, we have Dreams Factory, Snow and Steel by Jerome Hammond, Saeb Zako, uh, who was an animation, animation designer on Netflix's Arcane for $24.99. It's London of 1892. Like most children in the working-class town where she lives, Indira works the coal mines every day without protest. But when her little brother Elliot disappears, nothing matters anymore. She embarks on a desperate quest to find him and discovers that he is not the only child to have mysteriously disappeared. All clues seem to point to the same person, Kathleen Sachs, the wealthy owner of the coal mines, but why would she kidnap these children? Dreams Factory is a gripping Victorian adventure with elements of mystery and fantasy like The City of Ember or The Golden Compass. From IDW, look for the Star Trek Picard Stargazer one-shot, $4.99, set between season two and three of the Picard series. The USS Stargazer goes missing near a planet from his past, so John luc Picard enlists Seven of Nine's help to unravel the mystery and save the crew. And finally from DC, the Batman 89 hardcover, $24.99, collecting the six-issue series by Sam Hamm, jo uh, Joe Quinones, Leonardo Ito. I really need to finish this because I enjoyed the first issue and talked about the first issue. It features uh, Billy D. Williams' version of Two-Face, you have Catwoman, you know, looking like Michelle Pfeiffer. You have uh, a new Robin. All of it taking place in the Tim Burton universe. And when I read that first issue versus the Superman 78 issue, um, I really liked this one. I really liked the first Batman 89 issue. So uh, this is a reminder for you all, now that it's collected, to go pick it up. And it's also a reminder for myself that maybe I should finish this series. All right, there you go. Those are your suggestions and recommendations for the week of August 31st. I compose the page uh, with the, as, as a single unit in itself, almost like, again, I refer to music as, a, as really a best example of what I do. Each page has a rhythm to it. I deal in timing. I have, uh, I'm concerned with the amount of time it takes for a character to move from panel to panel. So I, I think of a panel as a stage with the proscenium arch and everything. And I arrange my figures in a panel in the same manner as a director would arrange actors on a given stage with entrances and movements. Uh, as far as lighting is concerned, wherever possible, I prefer to use theater lighting. I learned during the Depression when I did some stage sets that an enormous amount of uh, Scenery, an enormous amount of uh, storytelling, visual uh, storytelling, an enormous amount of uh, environment can be suggested by clever lighting and by the arrangement of shapes and forms. I enjoy what I'm doing. I, uh, I uh, feel fulfilled when I've uh, turned another corner. And... Uh, there's just so much more yet to do. This medium is just at its infancy. 
That was Mr. Will Eisner from the Masters of Comic Book Art documentary from 1987, talking about comics and sequential art, with a focus in those clips, surprisingly, on Will Eisner's comparison of comics to both music and to theater, which leads to today's segment, a little bit of theater news that dropped today, and specifically theater news that has a comic book connection, which is always a joy to come across, namely that Will Eisner's 1978 A Contract with God is being adapted into a Broadway musical. This is being headlined by Tawari Entertainment Group, with new and original songs written by Sam Hollander, Lisa Loeb, uh, Matasayu, Ryan Miller, and Jill Sobelay. And TEG Plus is led by author and theater producer Vivek Tiwari. And he is currently in the process of securing a book writer for the musical adaption. So since the uh, Contract with God novel consists of four interweaving stories revolving around the lives of a group of New Yorkers who live in a fictional tenement house, many of whom were Jewish or immigrants. For the musical, all the members of the songwriting team are either Jewish musicians and composers or immigrants themselves. Um, T.E.G. and Vivek Tiwari, they, uh, let's see, Vivek was a producer on Jagged Little Pill, based on Alanis Morissette's music, also one of the many producers on Green Day's American Idiot, The Addams Family, The Producers, Young Frankenstein, lots of mostly adapted works. And even on Twitter, uh, in the bio section for Tuari, it states, I use popular music to, to create work with narrative plus impact. So Tawari is the writer of The Fifth Beetle, the Brian Epstein story, which was a graphic novel with Andrew Robinson and Kyle Baker. And that is also being worked on to become a TV series, as well as turning uh, Harold and the Purple Crayon into a musical as well. So this is all really early stage uh, or excuse me, early, yeah, in the early stages, and they're just making the announcement that they secured the rights. But that's fairly heavy news if you think about um, how few comic properties are actually translated to musicals, and most of that is because of the subject matter, most of that is because of how do you translate one to the other, and that's why I thought that little clip by Eisner was fairly interesting because there's the man himself talking about his own work in terms that musical creators could learn from, could pay attention to, etc. So uh, just a real quick, not real well-researched list here, but when it comes to comic properties and musicals, we don't have many. So we have a musical based on Superman, a musical based on Spider-Man, but that's based on the characters, not necessarily a story. We have musicals based on comic strips like The Addams Family, Annie, Little Abner, various Charlie Brown musicals. And then I went to, okay, what are those musicals that are based on actual works? And I found a few 
that probably didn't, I don't think they've ever made it to the States, but apparently there's a musical on Death Note, and it's by composer Frank Wildhorn, who you may know from the Jekyll and Hyde musical. And he also worked on a Fist of the North Star musical, which led to a whole list of various manga that has been turned into either stage musicals or stage plays outside of the United States. And I don't know how many of those are professional, how many of those are parodies, how many of those are just small productions. I mean, ultimately, I just thought I would lead to what is probably the the most well-known comic that has been turned into a musical, and that is Fun Home, the 2006 graphic memoir by Alison Bechdel, which was turned into a musical which ran off-Broadway in 2013 and then moved to Broadway in 2015, won a ton of awards, got a lot of accolades, and is a fantastic musical. I mean, it really is. And the good thing about that musical is it manages to also bring into play the comic book part of it, too. So it is narrated by the adult Alison Bechdel, and she's standing at her uh, work workstation, and, and when she draws, you actually see the drawings up on a projection, usually. So, you know, that they wanted to make sure that they paid attention to that. There is also a musical called Superhero, but it is not based necessarily on anything, and there's also a couple plays that are based on either comics or uh, comic book creators, um, but just strictly speaking, musicals, um, I'm sure there might be more, but it will be real interesting to see if they take a contract with God and try to make it something more than just, you know, adapting a movie or adapting a TV show or something like that. Like, make it like Fun Home where, where it is still based on comics, but it is ultimately at its heart, it is a musical and using what you need in musical theater terms to create a musical, you know, with a basis, with a story that's based in comics. So, um, very interested, very interested in this to see how um, it could happen. I could see how they could look at this and go, yeah, we could turn this into a musical. Now, are they going to use the same stories from A Contract with God? You know, because some of them I don't necessarily know if they will translate to the stage or if they're just going to take the premise. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. And maybe, maybe I just need to do a spotlight series on all of these various comics turned musicals someday. Someday. Oh yeah! Feedback! That's right, it is Feedback Friday. It is a new month, so I get to look at all the feedback that I received in the month of August. Starting with an email from Matt Williams, uh, as a response to my review for Batman 125, where Matt writes that Chip Zdarsky's work on Batman the Night and the Batman Red Hood story in Urban Legends have been great, so I was very much looking forward to his run on Batman. I was disappointed in Chip's use of the general public believes the hero killed a villain trope. The people of Gotham, as depicted in James Tinian's run, would not believe that Batman would kill someone. And Matt says, I also, I also don't like him referring to the family as his soldiers. I know that Zdarsky is referring back to Dark Knight Returns, but the last three ongoing writers on the title have established that Bruce thinks of them as family. 
Uh, Matt continues, when Scott Snyder began his run on Batman, Grant Morrison advised him to write the character as if it were his own creation. I think the downside to that mindset is that character development can be lost as each new writer does a reset of sorts. Snyder, King, Tinian all left Bruce in a mentally healthier place at the end of their runs, but now we're back to a very gloomy Bruce as Sadarsky's run begins. Will he leave Bruce in a better place? Will I stick around to find out? I'm not sure yet. And then Matt um, finishes by saying, Sadarsky on Daredevil the first time around became really good, so I'm inclined to give him the benefit of, benefit of the doubt for a few issues, but I may end up waiting for the rest of the story to become available on the DC app. And uh, yeah, you know, that's a great observation who from someone who is reading the Batman title and is more familiar with Sadarsky than I am. And uh, that's kind of what I felt. I felt like it was too much of a backwards approach, looking backwards, and where I think, you know, you can really move forward with a character that is, you know, so hyper-focused. A lot of writers like to go, you know, and just really dig deep into the character, and we've seen that a lot. So unless you're telling a new story, it feels very repetitive. Eric from the Longbox Review is doing his own read of Marvel Saga as I release those segments, and has done uh, a few looks at a couple of the issues, issues one and two, and is hitting on things uh, that he is discovering himself, such as Captain America's frozen body being worshipped by Eskimos. Um, how did the Fantastic Four not get thrown into jail for what they did in their original mission to space? space? And the notion that a lot of self-righteous scientists become criminals in the Marvel Universe. Yes, that's very true. So those are always fun to read on Twitter. And then Chuck, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU on Twitter says, For whatever it's worth, I totally agree with your comments regarding the Batman, uh, Batgirl movie and the fallout. And that fallout is continuing to happen. So there you go. A short Feedback Friday for this month. I will continue to compile feedback throughout September. And that wraps up this digest. If you want to send me email, peter at thedailyrios.com or respond on the website, thedailyrios.com or through Twitter, Peter J. Rios, go to the Daily Rios Instagram for things that I don't necessarily talk about on the digest. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. You should find me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify so far. And if I'm not there, let me know. Or if I'm not somewhere that you listen to your podcasts, let me know. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 578, for Sunday, September 4th, 2022. Talk to you soon. And do you know who has you mounted here like a brilliant, albeit short-lived, butterfly? Hey, I recognize you. You're the wizard. Brilliant inventor of incredible devices for the very rich. And the very evil. Very good, Richard.